This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Hey, guys. I'm honestly surprised I was able to bang this out with how much overtime I've had to work lately. I somehow scraped by with a normal eight hours tonight, so here I am, recording this about a week and a half in advance instead of the usual three weeks. There might not be an episode next week because I'm working 12 days back to back and haven't had time to write a script or anything. Seriously, I am two days into this and I already hate it. Also, I apologize in advance if my voice is shaky or if I sound off. I just arrived home to some pretty terrifying shit and I'm trying to keep it together. Anyway, I'm not here to lecture you about mailing packages this time. All I'm gonna say to start this one out is that I hope you had a Merry Christmas and you're prepared to rain hellfire down on 2024 with me. I'm walking into next year with a rage in my soul that I've never felt before and I'm ready to set the whole world on fire. Let's get it. Oh, and if you're ever bored on Friday nights, I've started streaming on Rumble, talking crime news and shit. 10 p.m. Mountain Time. Mountain Time. Come hang out after overtime hell is over, obviously. They're uh, making me work Fridays, at least through the holidays. Ah, Missouri. Another Midwest state that I know virtually nothing about. Weird fact for you, when I was a dumb teenager, I had a long-distance relationship with a guy from a very small town in Missouri. A couple years ago, I was suggested an article about this town. Apparently a transgender person was attacked at a school or something. I don't remember details. It was just weird because this town has a population of about 17 people, and I hadn't talked to that guy in over a decade. Missouri is, as I'm sure you assumed, a death penalty state. I've heard of a handful of really nasty crimes happening here. The Midwest seems to be full of those. Missouri's age of consent is 17, so if you're a fucking creep, this is your place, I guess. Between 1810 and 1965, a grand total of 285 people were executed in Missouri. Most of these were hangings, with a good chunk of asphyxiation gas executions, and even one who was shot. Since 1989, lethal injection has been the go-to method. Surprisingly, no electrocutions here. Missouri kind of strikes me as one of those weird, backwoodsy states that would be happy to fry a condemned man, but apparently not. They are one of just five states to execute someone in the year 2023, including the first transgender person to ever be executed. I talked a little bit about that in my first Rumble stream, and I don't intend to talk about it here because my intentional dead naming and other opinions will get me kicked off the normal internet. So grab a Bud Light and some barbecue sauce. Today we're heading to the show me state, I guess. What the hell does that even mean? Fuck it, we're going to the Anheuser-Busch state. As terrible as that company is, I still prefer that over the show-me state. Before I get too far into the gruesome shit that people in Missouri have done, 
I'd like to tell you a bit about another small town. Y'all know how much I love weird town names. Well, there's a town down in the southeast corner of Missouri called Cooter. <laughs> I'm not shitting you. I tried my best to find a crime rate from this town because it's fucking hilarious, but they have a surprisingly low murder rate. It's zero. No violent crimes here. Apparently, Missouri's Cooter is a very nice place to live. I was able to locate one sex offender who was convicted of sexually assaulting a 13-year-old girl back in the early 90s. In 2016, the former police chief of Cooter was charged with stealing reward cards from the travel center he worked at. And in 2018, a 19-year-old Cooter resident was charged with attempted second-degree burglary and resisting arrest after he tried to break into an apartment. The mugshots of all three of these men indicate to me that Cooter is a very methed up place. My sources tell me that is the case for most, if not all of the state of Missouri. I normally like to start these with a historical case and then bring it up to current day, but I think we're gonna skip around a little bit with this one. As I was researching the executions from 2023, I found a man who is the reason that I believe we need the death penalty. My husband is an extremist libertarian. His words, not mine. Uh, it's kind of an oxymoron. He is 100% against the death penalty because the state shouldn't have that kind of power over its citizens. And while I fully agree with the sentiment of that statement, People like Johnny Johnson keep me clinging to the pro-death penalty side of the fence. The subject of mental illness is one that often comes up in death penalty cases. I'd say probably nine times out of ten the condemned try to use it to get out of their punishment. Eileen Warnos was arguably pretty fucking mentally ill. Have you heard that woman's interviews? Maybe I'll cover her one of these days. Her crazed rants about the prison staff torturing her with radio waves don't excuse the fact that she killed seven men. Andre Chikatilo? Stark raving fucking mad. But you don't get to rip the guts out of children and walk away with your life. I know you're sick to death of hearing about it, but I am technically mentally ill. Not in the same way as these sick fucks, but would that earn me a get out of jail free card if I snapped and killed someone? Probably, because I'm a woman, but it shouldn't. Johnny Johnson was mentally ill too, and his could be traced back to his childhood. Johnson was born in 1978 and didn't have an easy upbringing. When he was just four years old, his mother's boyfriend tried to drown him. A neighbor molested him. Multiple head injuries he sustained as a young boy required stitches. Johnson failed kindergarten and the first grade. Really not sure how one goes about doing that, but he apparently did. He was bullied for his learning disabilities and looks as well. Kids are assholes, we all know that. This dude didn't have an easy life at all. His brother Eric was diagnosed with schizophrenia and one of his grandfathers spent some time in a mental hospital. So far, we've got all the ingredients for some psychopath soup, but I'm not done yet. Johnny Johnson was an angsty, sad, mentally disturbed teenager, as was I. Huge difference in how we turned out, though. 
This young man was hospitalized multiple times for suicidal ideation and started doing drugs as a teenager to cope with everything. This is one of those cases where I can't help but wonder why the state didn't step in and get this kid some help before it was too late. At 16, Johnson brought a knife to school and was put on probation by the juvenile court. At this point, he was also sent to live with his father to provide a male role model. His dad was diabetic and ended up losing his foot to gangrene. Definitely a step up from his mom, though. The drug abuse, alcoholism, and self-mutilation continued into adulthood. By the age of 22, Johnson was homeless unless he was in prison and had also knocked up his girlfriend. He was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, but that went great with all the acid he was taking. A community support worker, whatever that is, eventually intervened after he got out of the mental hospital and helped him get on state assistance and find a psychiatrist. Things started to look up for the young man for about six months, but he stopped taking his meds as the mentally ill often do. Look, I'm not judging the guy for not wanting to eat his pills. There's a reason I haven't sought out my own psychiatrist. Being a zombie all the time fucking sucks. I've been medicated before. I prefer the self-medication route, but I can't ever find the shit that helps me anymore. He told his social worker that his probation officer saw him at a bar. I don't know how many of you are familiar with probation, but yeah, you ain't supposed to drink. Some people choose to drink anyway, and some of them are even lucky enough to get away with it. Anyway, Johnson started acting weird. He told his community support worker that he had an alien registration card. And no, he's not talking about a green card or anything like that. This dude is definitely 100% American. Rather than stay at home, the young man spends a lot of time in Valley Park doing drugs like any good schizophrenic person does. When his girlfriend goes to look for him, she notices that he's acting extremely paranoid. His support worker's supervisor eventually tries to contact Johnson by letter to tell him he needs to contact the agency by the end of the month to continue getting services. A copy of this letter is also sent to his probation officer in the hopes that he'll realize Johnson desperately needs to go back to the mental hospital. On July 25th, 2002, Johnson's girlfriend goes back to Valley Park to bring him home. He's only there for 20 minutes before he loses his shit. He spaced out for a while before yelling at his girlfriend and running off. The social worker would never hear from him again. She would, however, hear from his probation officer on July 26th after Johnson's picture was blasted all over the news. Before I continue with the saga of this mentally disturbed ginger guy, I needed to tell you about another family. Ernie and Angie Williamson had known Johnson since he was little. They had four kids together, including a six-year-old daughter named Casey. Sometime in 2002, the couple had split up and Angie took the kids to her parents' house at 805 Benton in Valley Park. This is a pretty small town. I Google mapped it because I was curious. Ernie was staying at his friend Michelle's house at 810 Benton, literally across the street from his ex. If I was in that position, I'd move as far away as I possibly could, but that's just me. Michelle's boyfriend, Eddie, who also lived at 810 Benton, apparently knew Johnson from school. 
On July 24, 2002, Ernie and Angie saw Johnson walking down the street and Angie called out to him. They chatted for a while before Johnson continued on his way. Later on that night, Angie took the kids to Michelle's so she could spend the night with her ex. In the house were Michelle, Eddie, Ernie, and Johnny Johnson. Angie and Ernie headed upstairs with the kids and stayed there all night. The next morning, Johnson was found watching cartoons on the couch with six-year-old Casey. Angie asked the young man if her daughter had woken him up, and he replied, She's fine. She isn't bothering me. Johnson was hanging around these people, who I'm assuming he considered to be pretty good friends, for the next few days. Early on the morning of Friday, July 26th, Ernie saw his daughter Casey while he was getting ready for work. She told him that she was hungry. His plan was to take her across the street to get something to eat before he left. It is at this time that he noticed Johnson sleeping on the couch. After being in the bathroom for about 15 minutes, Ernie went back upstairs to look for Casey. She's nowhere to be found. At about 7.15 a.m., Ernie woke Angie up because he can't find their daughter. At this time, they realized that Johnson is also missing. Not wanting to panic just yet, they rationalized that maybe Johnson had taken Casey with him to the store to get some milk for breakfast. I mean, it's not impossible, right? Ernie decided to go check the store, but found neither Johnson nor Casey. After checking both houses and the store, and still not finding their daughter, the couple decided to call 911 and report her missing. When the police arrive, they are informed that Johnson had been at the house earlier, but is now gone as well. During the search for Casey, a witness tells police that he saw a man carrying a little girl on his back through Valley Park earlier that morning. Casey's 12-year-old sister Chelsea and her friend Angel went out looking for the girl on their bikes. Can you imagine how fucking heartbreaking that must be? 12 years old and your little sister goes missing. I admire these kids for having the strength to help their parents in such a stressful time. The girls split up, and Angel encounters Johnny. She asks him where Casey is, and he tells her he doesn't know. Angel is a smart kid, and immediately reports this to the police. One of the officers out helping with the search sees Johnson walking and approaches him. Johnson says to him, I hear you're looking for me, and identifies himself. He agrees to go down to the station to answer questions, which, side note, you should never do. Don't talk to the cops. I'm glad Johnny Johnson talked to the cops, but just pro tip, just don't fucking do it. The witness who had seen Casey with a man earlier that morning would identify Johnson as the man who was carrying her. Johnson claimed during his interrogation that he'd woken up on the couch to a quiet house he decided to head to Sal's Market and meet up with his boss. After his boss didn't show up, Johnson went swimming. Seems plausible, I guess. It was a July day in Missouri. I don't know how hot it gets over there, but the summer months always kick my ass. After he was done swimming, Johnson was heading back to Michelle's house. This is when he ran into the cops. One of the detectives confronted the young man with the witness who had seen him and Casey walking together that morning. He denied knowing where the little girl was. Later on that day, Johnson consented to collection of evidence for a rape kit. He was told it may help eliminate him as a suspect. 
Right before they got DNA from Johnson, one of the detectives looked at him and said, you need to do the right thing. You need to be a man and tell me where she's at. We can help you. Tell us where she's at. Johnson began crying and said that Casey was in the old glass factory and that he'd killed her by accident. His confession was a bunch of lies. I won't even sugarcoat it. He did everything he could to paint himself in a better light despite what he'd done to Casey. Johnson told the detectives that as he was leaving Michelle's house that morning, the girl had asked where he was going. He told her the old glass factory, and she said she wanted to go with him. When the pair arrived at a silo, because glass factories apparently have silos, they dropped down into it. Johnson was trying to climb one of the walls by using a large rock, which fell out of the wall and hit Casey in the head. He freaked out, obviously. He told the detectives that he didn't think anyone would believe his story, so he covered Casey's body with rocks, sticks, and leaves before heading down to the river to commit suicide. When he got to the river, he lost his edge and couldn't bring himself to atone for his sins. And that's when he decided to go back to Michelle's house. Johnson drew a map for the detectives that showed where the glass factory was, as well as where the silo was located. In a chamber in the glass factory, they found Casey, still wearing her nightgown. She was covered with leaves, rocks, and pieces of concrete. She was unresponsive. The detectives tried to find the rock that had allegedly fallen on Casey's head, but they were unsuccessful. Instead, they found blood spatter on several walls, rocks, and other objects near her body. Oh, and they found Casey's underwear in a nearby doorway. I feel like that detail's probably pretty important. Johnson was taken to the police headquarters in Clayton. I had to try real hard to pronounce that T for you. Clayton. Sounds a lot like Layton, but we're not in Utah, so I'll try to cut the accent as much as I can. Johnson is told that they found Casey, and her death doesn't look like an accident. He responded by telling the detective that everything he said up to the point they entered the silo was the truth. What had actually happened that fateful July day was disgusting. Probably realizing he was fucked either way, Johnson decided to tell at least part of the truth. When they got to the silo, Johnson asked six-year-old Casey if she wanted to see his penis. She told him no. But he lowered his pants anyway and asked Casey to show him her vagina. At this point, she started to freak out and this caused Johnson to lose it as well. He claimed that he struck her in the head with a brick from about five feet away. She fell down in a daze and tried to crawl away from him, so he picked the brick back up and hit her in the head a second time. Casey was somehow still alive and made it to the other side of the silo before Johnson threw a boulder on her. This was ultimately what caused her death. He knew what he did was wrong, so he covered her body with rocks and headed down to the river. Not to kill himself, though, to wash the blood off. When asked about Casey's underwear, Johnson claimed that he had pulled them off of her while she was freaking out and had used them to wipe blood from her face. This was a lie. He had actually pulled them off before he pinned her down and tried to rape her. DNA tests on Casey and her clothing concluded that there was no semen present. Thank fucking God. But they also ran a test on Johnson's clothes and found a semen stain in his shorts. So, 
you know. It later came out that his intentions all along had been to rape Casey and then kill her when he was finished so she couldn't tell anyone. Johnny Allen Johnson was executed by lethal injection on August 1st, 2023. He fought it until the very end, using his mental illness as a reason to spare his life. If you're familiar at all with true crime or law, you'll know that being clinically insane is different from being legally insane. There was clear evidence of some kind of schizophrenic nonsense in this man, but there was also clear evidence of premeditation and attempts to hide what he'd done. He knew it was wrong. And that, my dear last meal listener, is why he wasn't legally insane. Threw you a curveball there, didn't I? Started out kind of sympathetic for this clearly afflicted man and ended it with a well-deserved needle in the arm. Many people argue that executing the mentally ill is wrong because they don't have control over their own minds. Johnson had enough control to try to hide what he'd done. And dead pedophiles don't reoffend. I hope Casey's family is able to find some peace. Johnson's last words were, God bless. Sorry to the people and family I hurt. His last meal was a burger, curly fries, and a strawberry milkshake. As I mentioned earlier, Missouri was one of just a few states I've come across to use the gas chamber for executions. They moved away from it after the Furman versus Georgia case that effectively abolished the death penalty back in the 70s. I used to think the gas chamber was a pretty peaceful way to go, but after researching it and doing an entire video on Rumble about it, my opinion has changed. Still beats electrocution though, by a fucking long shot. Paul Speckert was a businessman in St. Louis. He owned and operated a drug company and did well for himself. On the night of May 18, 1961, he was alone in the store. His mother and the store's delivery boy were both out delivering prescriptions to people. What a fucking time to be alive. These days they run a federal background check and make you wait three days to get a bottle of amoxicillin. While Paul was in the store by himself, a young man entered the store and asked for a drug that I've never heard of and won't be able to pronounce. Paul explained to him that he needed a prescription in order to get this drug. As they were talking, two other men entered the store. The taller of the two men was later identified as Clewiston Jones, and the shorter one was Lloyd Anderson. These men came toward Paul and went back behind the counter. It was at this point Paul realized the men were both armed with sawed-off shotguns. Real quick interjection here. What the fuck is the point in sawing off the barrel of a shotgun? I'm genuinely curious. Why not just carry a handgun and call it good? Jones hit Paul with the butt of his shotgun and knocked him to the floor. Paul was hit several more times while he was down. The men ordered him to get up and open the cash register before telling him to get back down on the floor. He complied and watched as one of the men took $525 out of the register. During the commotion, the delivery boy by the name of Thomas Group had returned from making deliveries. He was taken by force into the prescription room by Lloyd Anderson. Later on in the night, both men were taken down into the basement of the store and forced to lay on the floor. They were both beaten with shotguns, and Thomas was fatally shot. About 15 seconds after the first blast, Paul was hit in the shoulder. Their attackers left, and Paul noticed that Thomas wasn't moving. Paul ultimately survived his wounds. 
he was treated at DePaul Hospital for several lacerations and a gunshot wound. This case took place in the 60s. If you weren't aware, that was a very notorious era in the American criminal justice system. Black people were treated far differently than white people. My research for this episode has shown me just how racist 1960s Missouri actually was. If you're wondering where Paul's mother was during the robbery, I do have an answer for you. She had remained outside in her car for just a brief moment after Thomas went inside. She stayed out there because she had seen, and this is a quote, so put your torches and pitchforks away. Three shabbily dressed Negro men leave the store by the front door and run south on the west side of the street. That is a direct quote ripped from this court filing I'm using for research. Really sets the tone, doesn't it? After the men were gone, Mrs. Speckert went inside and learned what had happened. Eleven days after the robbery took place, two St. Louis police officers showed up to a house located at 1914 North Grand Avenue. Henry Lockenicht brought a 12-gauge shotgun and Raymond Lauer brought his service pistol. When they arrived at the property, they found Lloyd Anderson and Cluiston Jones. Lockenicht told the men to toss their guns and come out because they were police officers. Jones immediately pointed a pistol at him and fired three shots. Lockenicht shot and killed him. Anderson actually complied, dropped his weapon, and said, Don't shoot, I'm coming out. We're the men you're looking for. I killed the group boy. Can you imagine if this case took place in the current era? The entire city of St. Louis would be burned and looted. The body of Cluiston Jones was taken to the city morgue, and Paul Speckert came to view it. He identified the man as one of his attackers, and later saw Lloyd Anderson at the police station and identified him as the other. He would also confirm that the sawed-off shotguns the police had recovered were the ones used in the robbery. Lloyd Leo Anderson was executed by gas chamber on January 26, 1965. He was the last person to be executed this way in the state of Missouri. It is unclear which of the men actually fired the shots that killed Thomas Group and injured Paul Speckert, but in the end, they both met their maker for it. Guilt by association is a real thing. The lesson here is simple. Don't go out robbing pharmacies. I can't find anything about Anderson's last meal, but his last words were very deflective and show that he truly had no remorse for his actions. Tell them I didn't get a fair trial. Tell Hearns to kiss my ass. The same to the rest of you guys. Warren Hearns was the governor of Missouri at the time. The rest of you guys were the people witnessing the execution. Our next case has left me wondering which came first, the alcohol or the bad decisions. We all know how terrible the booze demon can be, but is drunkenness an excuse for poor decisions? Isn't it true that a drunk mouth speaks a sober mind? On the evening of August 30th, 1978, George Mercer was drinking at the Blue Seven Lounge in Grandview, Missouri with a couple of friends. He had his eye on a waitress named Karen Keaton. I'm telling you, man, this it's really hard with the Utah accent. And remarked at some point during the night that he'd like to take her to bed. 
I'm not sure if this was a power move or what, but Mercer's friend, Stephen Gardner, who had a friendly relationship with Karen, approached the young woman so he could talk to her. A short time later, he returned to his group of friends and informed them that he was taking Karen to breakfast and they'd go back to Mercer's house when they were done. Mercer left the bar with his friend David G. and another unnamed man. They went back to Mercer's house, where a man named John Campbell was babysitting Mercer's 10-year-old daughter. They weren't there long before Gardner arrived with Karen. The group sat and bullshitted for a while before Mercer grabbed a sawed-off shotgun and tapped Karen on the head with it. He told her to get her ass upstairs. This is about to make your blood boil. Karen obviously hesitated. She didn't want to go with him. Her intentions had been to hang out with Gardner. After Mercer pushed her toward the stairs, Karen called out for the man who she thought was her friend. His response? Happy birthday, Tiny. I guess Tiny was Mercer's nickname. Tiny Dick, maybe? Certainly gives off the vibe. Gardner also called out seconds, implying that he was going to rape Karen when Mercer was finished. This is making me fucking sick. Mercer threw Karen's dress down the stairs and told Gardner to put these clothes where they go. You know where they go. He did as he was told, putting the dress in a closet and pocketing the money that was in her purse. Mercer returned downstairs a while later, naked, with a full erection. Gardner went upstairs at this point, presumably to get his seconds. I don't know about any of you, but... I have to be pretty fucking shit-faced to be naked around my friends. I can only imagine how much this man had to drink. He apparently sat down and drank some beers, completely in the buff, before taking a shower and drying himself off in front of his friends. At this point, he said that Karen was a good piece of ass and that he was going back upstairs to fuck her in the butt. The depravity of this is just... Jesus Christ. But when you put it like that, it's almost comical. Not because it's happening, but because of how he put it. He sounds like a child. A few minutes later, Gardner yelled for David G to come upstairs. Campbell also decided to follow him. At this point, all four men were upstairs tormenting Karen. She was forced to perform oral sex on G, and the three other men returned downstairs. Karen stopped what she was doing, and G put his clothes back on. Obviously terrified, Karen asked what was going to happen to her. Not wanting her to freak out and make a bunch of noise, G tried to reassure her. Campbell would also try to reassure her. As Gardner was leaving for the night, Mercer asked him what he wanted done with Karen. Kill the bitch. Mercer's response to that chilling statement was, Okay, brother. Gardner asked if he needed any help, but Mercer told him no, and that he'd get rid of the body somewhere that it wouldn't be found. Gardner and G left, and Campbell went to sleep downstairs. A while later, he woke up to Mercer calling his name. When he went upstairs, he saw Mercer strangling Karen. He was ordered to check for a pulse, and found a very weak one. Mercer struck Karen in the side of the head, and he said, Die, you bitch. This is a leaky cunt. Die. No idea what the fuck he meant by that, but he continued strangling Karen and ordered Campbell to check for a pulse again. This time there wasn't one. 
Campbell helped Mercer load Karen's body into the bed of his pickup truck. The men drove to a field and Mercer threw Karen over a fence. When he came back to the truck, he told Campbell, now if I'd killed that leaky cunt 17 year old like I did her, I wouldn't have been on any rape charges and things I'm on right now. Oh, did I forget to mention that Mercer was facing rape charges after he'd assaulted a teenager? My bad. He had also been implicated in a gang rape that took place in August of 1978, the same month that he killed Karen. Pattern ain't getting any clearer. Karen's body wasn't found for several weeks. Campbell eventually led his attorney to it before they reported it to the authorities. She was so badly decomposed that she had to be identified through dental records. George Tiny Dick Mercer was executed by lethal injection on January 6, 1989. He was the first person to be executed in Missouri since the death penalty was reinstated and the first to be put down by lethal injection. His execution took place in the gas chamber as they didn't have any other facilities in which to carry it out. Mercer chose a friend from a motorcycle gang and his wife to witness the execution. Yeah, he was married. Apparently she stood by him through all these allegations of gang rapes and murder too. Some women just don't know when to walk away. This was a man who clearly had no regard for others and only cared about getting his tiny dick wet. He earned that death sentence most definitely. Mercer's last words were, look out for my shipmates down here. His last meal was tacos, burritos, barbecued beefsteak, barbecued ribs, a salad tossed with vinegar and oil dressing, french fries, and a large Coke. You know what I haven't talked about in a while? How gross the 1980s were. So much cocaine and hairspray and serial killers. I could tell you the story of Bob Berdella, who tortured and murdered at least six young men in Missouri in the 80s, but he's pretty well known. I managed to find one I'd never heard of. This case has everything, including evangelical Christianity, bank robberies, and a short trip to Utah that ended in federal charges. Buckle the fuck up, this one's gonna get messy. James Clayton Vaughn Jr., there it is again, was born in Mobile, Alabama, of course, on April 13th, 1950. He was the oldest of four children born to a World War II vet father and a perfectionist mother. James Sr. was a drunk and had been jailed twice for public intoxication after his wife Helen called the cops on him. As you can probably tell, this was one of those dysfunctional families that did their best to survive in the post-war atmosphere. James Jr. later claimed that he was physically abused as a child and never got enough to eat. His mother didn't care about her kids, according to her oldest son. The young man developed an interest in evangelical Christianity in high school. This took a weird turn when he found himself aligned with the National Socialist White People's Party and the KKK. I told you it was going to get messy and you chose to keep listening. That's on you. This interest in all things white power inspired Vaughn to change his name to Joseph Paul Franklin, 
In case you're wondering, he combined the names of Paul Joseph Goebbels and Benjamin Franklin. Hell of a fucking thing we're doing here, goddamn. After reading Mein Kampf in the 60s, this troubled young man decided to start a race war. Franklin roamed around the U.S. for most of his life, trying to cleanse the world of those he saw as inferior. He is quite literally what the left thinks conservatives are. In reality, we're just as disgusted with this man's actions as they are. How did Franklin manage to support himself financially? Oh, you know, working odd jobs and helping people out. No, I'm kidding. He was a bank robber. This was supplemented with money he actually earned from donating his blood. I too sell my blood for money. I'm a broke bitch. Y'all know that if you've watched my first Rumble livestream. Catch me Friday nights talking about the news. Anyway, back to this Nazi walrus bastard. His blood donations would end up being his downfall. Probably should have stuck to robbing banks instead of leaving a paper trail for the FBI. This man's crimes took place between 1977 and 1980 and took him across the U.S. On July 29, 1977, Franklin firebombed a synagogue in Tennessee. The entire building was destroyed. Thankfully, everyone in attendance that day had left early and no one was injured. Less than two weeks later, Franklin shot Alphonse Manning Jr. and Tony Schwen in a mall parking lot in Wisconsin because they were an interracial couple. His final crime of 1977 took place on October 8th in St. Louis, Missouri. Franklin hid in the bushes near a synagogue and opened fire on a group of people who were there to attend services. A 42-year-old man named Gerald Gordon was killed and two other people were injured. Does the name Larry Flint sound familiar to you? Do you have a picture in your head immediately when I say his name? He worked for Hustler magazine in the 70s. On March 6, 1978, he and his lawyer were ambushed in Georgia. No one was ever charged in this shooting, but Franklin would confess to it and claim that he'd carried it out because Hustler had displayed interracial sex in one of its issues. A few months later in late July, Franklin attacked another interracial couple. Bryant Tatum was shot and killed outside a pizza hut in Tennessee. His girlfriend, Nancy Hilton, was also shot but survived her injuries. Franklin later confessed to this and pled guilty. He was given a life sentence. I brought this case up to my husband because I thought he might actually know who Joseph Paul Franklin was. After all, he was a Nazi walrus bastard and his crimes eventually brought him to this salty desert wasteland. My husband's response was, didn't he shoot someone at an Arby's? It wasn't Arby's, it was Pizza Hut, and also Taco Bell. On July 12, 1979, Franklin shot Harold McIver through a window from about 150 yards away. During his confession, Franklin said that he did this because Harold was in close contact with white women. The state of Georgia never charged him with this murder. In October of 1979, Franklin attacked yet another interracial couple. Jesse Taylor and his wife, Marion Brissett, were shot and killed in Oklahoma. I don't know what broke this man's brain so badly that he'd want to kill people who were in love simply for being different colors. It's disgusting. Franklin's crimes really ramped up in the last year he was free. 
On May 29, 1980, he shot a civil rights activist named Vernon Jordan after he'd seen the man with a white woman in Indiana. He was charged with this crime, but denied any involvement and was actually acquitted. But, you know, he was guilty and later confessed. Nothing they could do about it, though, since he'd already been acquitted. On June 8th, Franklin killed two teenagers in Cincinnati, Ohio. All of this man's crimes are despicable, but this one bothers the fuck out of me. His initial plan was to shoot a racially mixed couple. He was standing on an overpass and waiting for the chance, but he shot 14-year-old Daryl Lane and 13-year-old Dante Brown instead. Franklin later confessed to these murders and was given two life sentences. Just a week after the senseless murders of Daryl and Dante, Franklin found himself in Pennsylvania. He shot and killed 22-year-old Arthur Smothers and his 16-year-old girlfriend, Kathleen Mikula, as they crossed the Washington Street Bridge. They were, as I'm sure you assumed, an interracial couple. I'm more bothered by the age gap, but either way, they didn't deserve to meet their end at the hands of a racist asshole. On June 25, 1980, Franklin picked up two hitchhikers. Nancy Santamaro was just 19, and Vicki Durian was 26. He shot them to death in West Virginia. These women were white. During a later interrogation for a different crime, Franklin confessed to these murders and said he'd decided to kill the women after one of them said she had a black boyfriend. A man named Jacob Beard was found guilty of these murders and sent to prison. He spent nearly 20 years behind bars before Franklin confessed and exonerated him. And now we're here, in my home state, Utah. On August 20th, 1980, Franklin shot Ted Fields and David Martin near Liberty Park in Salt Lake. Fun fact, I used to live within walking distance of Liberty Park. I know the area very well. These murders would land him federal civil rights charges in addition to the obvious first-degree murder charges. After leaving this desert wasteland, Franklin headed back east. While driving through Kentucky, he was pulled over and questioned about a gun he had in his car. He decided it would be in his best interest to get the fuck out of there. Don't talk to the cops and all that. Unfortunately for Franklin, the cops found enough evidence in his car to link him to the sniper killings that had been taking place across the country. Didn't help his case that he was covered in racist tattoos. Pretty sure there was at least one swastika on him somewhere. Authorities were also aware that he donated blood, so they issued a nationwide alert to blood banks in hopes that they'd be able to catch him. In October of 1980, Franklin showed up to one of these blood banks in Florida. An employee noticed his tattoos and called the FBI. Franklin's reign of terror finally ended in Lakeland, Florida. He tried to escape while on trial in Missouri, but was unsuccessful. A psychiatrist interviewed him and testified for the defense that she believed he was a paranoid schizophrenic and unfit to stand trial. If you ask me, he was a racist asshole deserving of the death penalty, which was what he ended up getting for the murder of Gerald Gordon. Joseph Paul Franklin was executed by lethal injection on November 20th, 2013. Shortly before his execution, Larry Flint asked that Franklin receive clemency. He said that a government that forbids killing among its citizens should not be in the business of killing people itself. 
That's a fair point. But you tell that to the families of these people he killed. I'm sure they were happy to know that this monster was finally in hell where he belongs. Franklin later renounced his racist beliefs. He said his motivation was illogical and then blamed his upbringing for his actions. Apparently, Franklin had interacted with black people in prison and later said, I saw they were people just like us. That statement itself is just, what the fuck? Franklin didn't have any last words. I'm kind of grateful for that. He also refused a last meal. That I'm less grateful for. I was kind of curious what kind of food this sick motherfucker liked. Holy shit, that was a long one. Missouri definitely has some weird shit going on. If you enjoyed this episode, buy one of them jets that can write shit in the sky and tell the world about my podcast. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. I'm available on Odyssey and most podcast apps, and also Rumble, where I recently started live streaming. 10 p.m. Mountain Time on Fridays, if you're interested. I hope to see you there. But if not, I'll be back next week, hopefully, if I can get some time off work, to talk about a state I have some loose ties to. Cursed is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.